Welcome back to another Family Fridays on Knox Unleashed. This is a great, great day. A great, great day for you people. You have no idea how much of a wonderful day this is. Everybody on the Facebooks, everybody on the, what they call it, YouTubes, you're welcome. I'm glad that you're here. We're going to talk about what they should have called Christian nationalism, civic covenanting, with the strawberry Zwingli, but before I get to him, there's very, very, very exciting news, a, a new development, if you will, a development that is happening on the um, pub university. A friend of mine by the name of Jason Farley has wonderful, wonderful news to let you know about. I'll give him the mic. I'm so glad, Jason, you don't sleep with the fishes. Please tell us what's some wonderful news about. <laughs> Well, first off, I believe in America, so <laughs> I. What is that? What does that have to do with anything? That's the what? That's the first line of The Godfather. That's that's. The, oh, has it been that the long? Movie, the God... That's been that long. It's been I that long. The that's, line. that's the open. That's the opening line. That's what he says to The Godfather. We can, and, we can when he first the... meets him. He says, "He says I believe in America, but you know, it, it's a it's the best. It's one of the best scenes in all cinema. You know, I fifty year have to anniversary." Crack. I'm going to have to go grab that now and use that for Family Friday. We talk about Civic Covenant. I believe in America. Yeah. It's <laughs> the first, it's the, I think it's a 50-year anniversary of the movie this week. Oh, it's so perfect. So, All yeah. right. So what are you it doing? Is. It is. It's perfect. And why, why, why do I even have you well, on here right now? Because I'm really excited about what's going on. Go ahead. Yeah. we are Because we are uh, relaunching the Fight Left Feast University as Pub University. Uh, and it went up yesterday. It's available. You, people can start registering for the first two classes that we're offering. The first one is the mission of God for the family. So to, uh, eight weeks um, looking at and talking about uh, we are we usually we look around and we see that the family's falling apart. And most of the time, what we do is we get into defense mode and we, we get defensive and we say, how are we going to protect our families? How? But we never stop and say, how do we get our family into offense mode and look at what is the mission that God has for our family and then live according to the mission, live trying to accomplish the mission rather than just having to worry about uh, defense all of the time. So the first a class that we're launching with for that reason is the mission of God for the family. Like. And, it, um, and it starts, it starts in just two weeks. So time to go get signed up for that one. Um, and then the second class is apologetics one. So I've taught apologetics for 15 years now, been doing evangelism actively for over 20. And um, the, uh, in the course of all of that study, I have uh, come up with eight questions um, that are from the Bible and are uh, useful, or I think the heart of of uh, apologetics, the heart of so things like what is the idol behind this objection, and how do we answer it? What's the false gospel that people are believing, so that we can show them the gospel is better? Those sorts of apologetic questions, so that we have uh, instead of just answering um, answering people when they have objections, how do we actually move conversations? towards the gospel in, um, in an apologetic way. So um, that one, Apologetics 1, that one starts in December, and uh, they are up and they're ready to go, and uh, I'm yeah super excited to be uh, running it. And then we're going to be, if, keep an eye on your email because uh, we've got other teachers that are 
uh, putting together their syllabuses. And uh, it, as the next year gets going, we're going to have a lot of different classes uh, up and running. So it's that that uh, it's an it's an education on uh, the, the education that you missed. The education on how to have a good life um, is what we're aiming at. Yeah, this is uh, what we call our version of the five-foot bookshelf from Harvard, right? So it's re-education. A lot of our kids are getting classical educations, and we're not really getting one ourselves, and so we should be. Um, Jason, tell everybody where they can go and sign up because seats are limited. I think we're only doing like 20, 25 people to a classroom. So I think one of the classes is getting yep. pretty full right now. Where can people sign up at? Uh, well, flfnetwork.com is you go there and then along the side you can click to go see the pub university so flfnetwork.com and uh, then you click on what class you want to sign up for and and it, it's got the syllabi uh, up there underneath each class so you can see what what we're learning and um and then uh, you and then you're going to want to bookmark it because you're going to want to be coming back regularly for the the upcoming classes that we've got on poetry uh, uh poetry storytelling uh, we've got a, a a class coming on uh, on family uh, family budgeting um, that I'm really excited about. How to use your how to how to uh, grow family finances well. And the the sorts of skills that uh, make it possible to um, to uh, to live the good life with your family. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it, man. Yeah, uh, that's good. Okay, without any further ado. Um, and you know, I like to have lots to do. I'm not even going to tell you about my lovely sponsors over at New Heart Treasures, which is the mug that they sent me that I drink from. I can't, I don't have time to mm, tell you about them and how lovely they make your water taste because of they make everything, um, <clears throat> in very Christian ways. I'm not going to tell you, go check them out at newhearttreasures.com because I don't have time for that because the strawberry Zwingli might be bathing in somebody's blood right now. And we don't want too many bodies stacked up around him where he can't communicate to us, you know, very well. So without any further ado, this man hails from Phoenix, Arizona. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You you heard me. And he is pastor of the church out there, Puritan Reform. Mm -hmm. Mm. You might know him as David Reese, uh, but we all know him as the Strawberry Zwingli. Yeah, yeah, I want you to put your hands together for none other than the Puritan David Reese. How you doing, well, the, brother? <laughs> great. The organ reminds me exactly of my own church experience. I am always thinking, oh, how I wish there were more organ in my life. <laughs> you, you did, I was going to ask you, could, could you have an organ at a Puritan church? I don't think you could. No, no, uh, we couldn't do it. I, 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 my, I would turn from being red with the blood of my enemies to being the one bleeding. That would be the <laughs> result. You do know there's going to be organs in heaven, right? Like there's going to be organs in heaven. Well, that's fine. They might be, but I mean, like, my point is that the worship that we have now with musical instrumentation, uh, we that was instituted in the temple system, and it was not instituted before then, and it is not a part of modern worship because we are not in the temple order. Just like incense and you know slitting the throats of bulls. Well, yeah, we don't we don't have to do that anymore. Granted, but I'm just saying, like, some things you know get magnified, brother. Some things get better. Do you think that there'll be a physical temple in you, heaven? You know, we didn't have electricity back then either, David. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, all right. All right. Yeah. So um, there's so much to talk about, but I told you, I told you. Oh, let me tell everybody how this is going to work. This, we're going to have a great time here in just a minute. But 
if you want to talk to Dr. Reese, or I'm sorry, Pastor Bishop Reese, I always want to call you doctor. It just feels like it should go along with your title. But if you want to talk to Bishop Reese, um, he'd probably prefer me call him Pastor Reese or Mr. Reese. Uh, you're going to have to share the show. Supreme Chancellor okay. is uh, That's my first the- don't do don't, this. Don't, don't, don't if do I end it. up if I if I end up as Supreme <laughs> Chancellor Strawberries Wingley, I'm just gonna not show up anymore. Don't tempt me. You know my audience is with me. They'll start saying, "Excuse me, Supreme Chancellor," and it's just not gonna feel good for you. Okay, this there's a rule. If you're gonna talk on the show, you're gonna engage with us on this show. You have to share the show. Matter of fact, you should have shared it anyway, just because. It's better than sharing gay stuff that's all over your timeline. We're going to talk about basically civic covenanting, what they should have been calling Christian nationalism. But that's okay. We don't mind that they have the title wrong. We're just going to correct it and give us some legs. All right, so share the show, and you'll be able to talk with um, the Supreme Chancellor, Strawberry Zwingli. I see we got a few people already on YouTube and Facebook and the video side of Twitter, X. And you guys are all there. Go ahead and engage on here and I'll bring you to the chat. Oh, let me share the, I will share with you right now. Copied. There you go. Right inside your comments on those social media platforms. You have a video link. If you're not in spaces, you can go to that video link. I will see you in the waiting room and bring you in along the way of the conversation. All right. So David last. Oh, I can't go there. I'm sorry. I I looked at you and it. (sighs) How long we known each other, man? Two years, two, three two, years? Two, two, two years, two years. You know, in this whole two years that we've known each other, I've only seen you dress in two things. A light blue shirt, a white shirt. I was, okay. I'm not done, I'm not done, I'm not done. And I've only seen you wear like two colors of pants, and the khakis, and maybe three. That's it, three, and all the time we've known each other. I only, I only own three pairs of pants. <laughs> <laughs> and one time I was at your house, and I saw your clothing, you got a bunch of the same sh- two shirts. That's it. What yes. is going on today that you, for the first time in the two years I'd known you, I didn't even know you owned a polo or even any, like the T-shirt that's underneath the, I didn't even know you owned anything like that. What is going on with you? Are you yeah, okay? Yeah, so I, I went on a hike with some other people, and the conversation was about some church matters. It went long. I didn't have a chance to change. I didn't mean to disappoint you. But uh, I just had to go straight from hike to here, so you know I you know wear a polo when exercising. Now this is a this is a very breathable. I don't even know the brand, and thankfully, otherwise I accidentally give them exposure. I have no idea who they are. So, anyways, I just, it's just a hiking polo. You don't you don't hike in your your shirt that you I see you in. All, I just didn't think you. I do sometimes. Else. There there are videos. There are videos <laughs> of me making it to the top of mountains wearing suspenders and button down and dress pants and dress shoes. And those those mountains were subdued, my friend. Uh, uh, I have a certain image in my head of you, and if you ruin that, we can't be friends anymore. I just I know, I know. That. This this is me letting. It, I'm just really letting it loose right now. I'm just. This is like roughly the equivalent of just you know, you just you walk in and then just yeah, totally hung over. I get it. All right. So last week I went back and listened to our conversation last week and I've been listening to the conversation. I went back and listened to the conversation we've had before on these Fridays. All of the conversations that you and I have had are now in a playlist on YouTube. If you want to catch those, you can go to YouTube and see all the Family Friday conversations that we've been having. I think Knox Unleashes his own uh, playlist is there as well as inside the pub app. Download the app. 
You can get all these conversations. They are available for you. I suggest that you go and listen to them. But, David, I went back and listened to the, just last week's, and there was something you said last week that I wanted to double-click on, but I realized you had a library of things you needed to get through. So I didn't double-click on some of the things you brought up. And those the, actually it was three different things, and I wanted to go through them really well because I thought the way that we talk about right now, at least in the conversation about the civil magistrate and government and politics, it is absolutely void of the church, and we keep on trying to fit— um, you know, one way or another, people are trying to fit the church over the, the magistrate, right? They're trying, or, or over inside of politics and the government. They, hey, it doesn't work like that is the conversation we're having. No, it needs to work like this. And all we've been doing is talking about the family, the, 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 the church, and its governments and how it functions. And you, these three points you laid out last time, I wanted to ask you, how does it work in the civil magistrate world? Does it fit on top? inside how does it plug in and these three points were this you said that the church's responsibility and duty was for right teaching for right worship and for discipline right teaching right worship and for discipline and and for the life of me i know if you're listening to this and you came into the conversation thinking we're going to be talking about christian nationalism the first thing that wasn't brought up as people have been having this conversation is right teaching <laughs> right worship and discipline so how are these things important as it relates to the conversation on Christian nationalism or civic covenanting? Yeah, so when we think about the civil order, the civil order is one of four covenant institutions that God has established. The four covenant institutions are where the work gets done, okay? The four institutions that are the, the covenantal institutions are what matters, and it's the individual, the household, the church, and the state. And the state is one that where it's dealing with issues in terms of we've got to we've got to work on there's a public sword, there's praising what's good, and there's there's punishing what's evil. And so the principal purpose of the state, its unique function is to use the sword to cut off the worst things. And if we transfer to the state the positive constructive work of ordering society of making it so that the culture is beautiful, what we're going to do is we're going to steal authority from the church and steal authority from the household and steal authority from the individual. And that's one of the dangers of the word nationalism, right? Nationalism, you tend towards thinking about a collective order and you think the state is the partnership that contains all other partnerships. That is the Aristotelian definition. And that is not what the state is. The state is a limited institution of power that is coercive in punishing evil, in waging just warfare, and it should praise what is good. And that praise is not the idea of taking over the role of the state in terms of a preaching of the word of itself, but rather the statement of law tells you the difference between what's punished and what's honored. And then there's going to be rewards for certain people, and we think about that in the form of somebody self-sacrificially, you know, somebody saves a unit, right? Like you have somebody who dies trying to save their unit in combat. That person, we would posthumously give them a medal. But you know what we should also do is make sure to provide an economic reward to the family to make sure that they're taken care of because of the sacrifice of that person, right? So imagine you've got a medal of honor and a check, right? That's a, a reward for that person. Um, and so that way the name is honored 
and there's a provision. So his work and sacrifice, there's a provision for the family there. So that kind of gets down in some ways with like a um, life insurance policy for soldiers and stuff like that sometimes, right? So we, we have things like that that can be put into place. So there's a limited set for the state. So if we're going to have a Christian state, which when people say Christian nationalism, they don't mean Christian socialism that's fascistic. They don't mean a sort of like white pride thing or whatever. They don't, they don't mean anything like that. What they mean is they're talking about a Christian government. That is how the average person who's a Christian hears about it is adopted it. And so just like the word Puritan became a slur or whatever, there's this kind of adopting of a negative label that's meant to be negative, right? It was used in the context of trying to tie Christians with sort of a uh, white supremacy thing. And so that's what the word nationalism was brought in for. And so now what's happening is a lot of people are just going, okay, we're just going to take the label. And now we're just going to say, fine, Christian nationalism, whatever. Let's talk about a Christian government. And so what we need to guard against is the blurring of the institutions. And so the state has to exist to defend the church, to acknowledge the true church, to see it established in the land, to see reformation put into order, and then back away and guard it. And so the real work is done by godly individuals, well put together households, and the church. And so we need to understand what the church is supposed to do. And here's the other thing. You can get top-down reformation, but unless there's a church reformation, it's for a very limited time. Unless households are put into order, it's for a very limited time. Unless individuals are godly and able to enter into positions of support and service, it's for a very limited time. The long-lasting reformations are from the bottom up, and the short ones are the ones that are top-down, and then they don't go any further. Mm. You can have a longer-lasting one where you have it sort of led, a magisterial reformation led by the magistrate, but it has to go down. And that means it ha- we have to see local governments— Churches, local churches, households, individuals reformed according to the word of God. So, it so those yeah. four. So, so, so then we don't get, and this is something that really, it seems like, you know, the Anonymous have been arguing this for years. And the people, most people who don't like the Anonymy have been closing their ears every time they've tried to make this argument that this really is not a power grab, what we're talking we're talking about transformed men living transformed lives before God, um, you know, living godly in and through the church that has an effect and a reality that uh, of how they interact in the civic realm with their brothers that forms a way that honors God in their government, right? And so, Absolutely. And so we're not talking—and everybody keeps getting this wrong—we're not talking about a January 6th type of— revolutionary type. That's not what we're talking about. Right. And so I just want to make that clear, but okay. So then tell me now, how is it that the church, because people aren't making these connections, what does a church have to do with the state at all? Because you said something here that I think would rub most people wrong, which is like the state has, I think most particularly Baptists are not willing to argue that the state has a responsibility to write doctrine. Right. But I don't know if you can get that position uh, unless you don't feel this first table of the law is something worth enforcing, but right, <laughs> right. So I don't, I don't know. I, I'm still trying to figure that one out. But they're very concerned about the state running its hands all the way through to the church, and so they're trying to make sure there's a complete separation there. But the way you're seeing it, the church and the state, there's a protector here for the church. Yes, but the, the, there is a separation of institutions, and this right. is very important. The Reformation emphasized 
the separation of church and state. And so John Calvin would very happily have asserted the separation of church and state. And at the same time, he would very much have asserted that the first table of the law needs to have criminal sanctions associated with it. And so when we talk about the separation of church and state, what we're not talking about is the separation of a Christian worldview from the civil order, which is the dumbest thing that the left keeps repeating. And so the problem is that we're so bad at arguing that that kind of like shuts us up. Or or, or we try to go, oh, well, Jefferson didn't mean Jefferson. Like, who cares what Jefferson thought? Like, Jefferson is not like some grand scholar of the Reformation. Like, I get it. Jefferson had some like important roles in the founding of the American Republic and all of that. But we should care more about what the reformers were saying and more about what the Bible says. And so we can talk about that. But the point is, the separation of church and state is the assertion that the two institutions are distinct. So let me explain a couple of errors, and that will help us to understand the difference. So Erastianism was the error that was asserted in England at the time that the Westminster Assembly and the Puritans were resisting the crown. Okay, so the 1640s, you have the English Civil War, where the Puritans are fighting against Charles I, and eventually they lop off his head. Now, in that resistance, what you have is there's this defining of the church as different in its relationship to the state than how Charles I wanted it to be. Charles I and the other people who asserted a um, a royal supremacy over the church were trying to say that the church is a department of the state, that the church is a, is a part of, you might even call it like a branch of government, but that the chief executive has control over these things. In the East, this was called Caesaropapism, that Caesar is Pope. And so you'll have in like Russia, for example, this doctrine of the autocracy, that the, that the czar is sort of the, the holy autocrat who has control over the church. And so uh, Constantinople had this uh, Caesaropapism, Caesar is Pope. East has the, the Eastern Church has this, the Eastern Communion, has this view of the, of the autocrat, the holy autocrat. And then in England, there was this royal supremacy. So all of these are wrong. The church is not a department of the state. On the other side, what you find in the West is you have the in the papal dominion, what you have is this assertion that the Pope is the one who grants authority to kings and that kings are only lawful in authority if they're granted authority by the Pope. And so you have the Pope as authority over the other magistrates, and that's because of his power in the church, and that's supposed to be the claim. So the state is not a department of the church. The church is not a department of the state. They are separate institutions that both receive their authority directly from God. Mm. And so in receiving their authority directly from God, what we find is this idea that the church has authority from the Lord Jesus Christ. The state has authority from the Lord Jesus Christ. Both of them need to be honored, and they have the election of their own officers by distinct action. So you don't become a senator in the highest court or the highest legislative body of the state by being elected an elder in the highest court in the church. So you have separate processes of choosing officers and they're separate offices. At the same time, you might have a guy who's an elder in the church and is also a civil magistrate, but he would have gotten both offices by separate processes. 
And so that doesn't mix the institutions. That's just the same guy receiving an office in the two separate institutions by separate actions. So they oh, go ahead. You have more you want to add to that? Because I don't want to interrupt. No, you. I'm good. OK, so, so I, I want to go back to to the. So that's really good. I think that cleans up a lot. I hope that, I hope we just take and clip that out and let everybody get a taste of that so that we can stop some of the foolish because that's so, that's so basic. That's really it's ba- like that's history handed down to us. We, we got that. We should understand that. And we should stop labeling other people, um, you know, as if they're trying to do some sort of revolutionary type thing. I just, I'm just so sick of that. Such an old conversation has been answered. And you did a good job of explaining how these offices work there. So when we talk about the church, how does the church, through right teaching, right worship and discipline, does it does it manifest some form of of the civil magistrate, uh, uh, you see what I'm trying to get at here? Does it does it bring to the order of the civil magistrate? Because it seems like the family, if the family is qualifying you for office, I, would you say office in both sectors, both the civil as well as the 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 church? And but it seems like the church also is having an impact on the civil. How, what is right teaching, or should I say, how does right teaching, how does right worship and discipline? have an effect on producing a good government. Absolutely. So the church is going to be a producer, a factory, if you will, of men fit for the civil magistracy. So there's two Unless, so, so there's two areas where they, they, they get fit is home and church. Those two are qualifying areas. Right. So in the church you're gonna have a person have a, a good reputation. Right. And they're going to have given an example of service. They're going to be somebody who is able to um, show that they are a God-fearing man. And so if they're not, if they don't have a credible profession of faith, you know, one of the qualifications in Exodus 18.21 is that they fear the Lord. Well, if they don't have a credible profession of faith, you don't have any reason to believe that they're qualified. And so the church is a part of that. And so it's an arena for that to be displayed. And the the magistrate is going to be shaped by the word, right? Ministers are going to teach and inform men to be able to be discerning and wise so that they can judge things rightly. And so, you know, if you're, if you're going to pick men to be your civil officers and you're going to pick men to be your church officers, they better be the best men. Mm. And if they're going to be the best men, sometimes they're going to overlap, but also as your society reforms, you're going to find that you've got lots of A-grade men. And as you reform and mature as a church and as a society to be more godly, and you're able to have more A-grade men who are competent men, who are lovers of truth, haters of covetousness, and fearers of God, you're going to find that you've got lots of men that can do civil office, lots of men that can do church office, and you're going to want to have them specialize more as opposed to having people having to fill out multiple jobs. And that's because there's so much work to do. It'd be nice to have more men doing the work. And so that idea that that in the beginning, especially, you're going to have a hard time finding enough qualified men. And then as things mature across a couple of generations, it's a lot easier to find qualified men and men are going to tend to hold both offices less. I was, I was sitting up here trying to find if there's anybody who had a question for you. They put it out on, on YouTube yet. They have not. I, so somebody asked me, I, I want to get, I want to get to more of that. I want to talk about that a little more because there is, 
and the reason I keep pushing on this is because um, there is a sect, a group of, of evangelicals that are very fine moving past the theological issues that we have inside of evangelicalism into the civil issues just so that we can fix the country in order for us to be able to not perish, right? So they see the government falling down. They see the borders. They see the war. They see the money being sent off to other nations. They see the taxes. They see the trans surgeries. They see all of this stuff. And then they get serious about wanting to go and fix the government because they see it's torn down. What Some of the things you were talking about last time, and this is why I keep working on right teaching, right worship, and discipline— because there's something that's inherent in these things that give you the fruit of what you have in your civil government. Yes. Yeah. So that the right teaching is formative of the soul of the individual. The right teaching is the formative of households. Right teaching is formative in the society. It's formative in the church itself, but it's also formative in the society. The church is the conscience of the society. Hmm. Right doctrine being preached is what informs the society. And then discipline shows that you mean it. Mm. If you don't discipline anybody, then nobody believes what you say. Right. Mm. So, so church discipline, if you've got a church that's got like over a hundred people in it and nobody's been disciplined in like two years, like ask yourself real carefully, do I think that people are that quick to repent here? Do I think that there's no sin? Is stuff being cleaned up or not? Mm. And if you've got all sorts of sins that you complain about with other people, but you don't go to the person to rebuke them and don't go through Matthew 18, step one, and then step two, and then bring it to the court. Okay. You're part of the problem, right? So a part of the thing is Christians need to rebuke each other. Mm. We need to be willing to rebuke each other. So the discipline process certainly involves the elders, but it also involves the congregation. Elders like to avoid church courts and they like to avoid public trials because they're rough. Yeah. <laughs> and, and people don't like conflict in general. And Matthew 18, step one is exhausting. People have a hard time confronting people privately, much less saying, you know, this isn't resolved. I need to bring witnesses. Like that's hard. It takes like guts, right? So so when you when you are going through conflict and you're like, no, you were in sin and you're not repenting and you need to repent. And look, this isn't resolved. And I know I understand what you're saying. You understand what I'm saying. And so we need to get witnesses involved now. And they go, oh, I don't want to do any of that, whatever. There's this whole wiggling out thing. And so then everybody's like, if I can just avoid step two from happening and have the witnesses, then they can never go to trial. But the problem is the church court, if somebody's unwilling to go to step two, the church court needs to become involved then because of a refusal. So we don't like that stuff. We feel like it's like litigious and, and whatever. And it's like, no, that's Matthew 18, step two. It's the process that the Lord Jesus Christ gave us. We have an obligation to grind through conflict. And that's how discipline occurs. And if we aren't willing to deal with discipline, if we're not willing to deal with unrepentant sin, if we're not willing to deal with things privately and then go semi-public and then public, if we're not willing to deal with those things, there's no discipline. The teaching doesn't have teeth. And, and, and it does something else to the culture. You know, my wife and I were talking about this. When you have the kind of judicial system that we currently have where the criminal and the victim are not properly restored because there is no restitution really made— then there's yeah. animosity that stays there. Yep. Right. And when you have con like people, like I, I think there is definitely like a um, clinical reason for all of this. 
uh, in one sense where it's like, okay, yes, you didn't get the proper form of the courts involved and you didn't follow through with the process of Matthew 18. And so, you you, you know, the discipline doesn't stick. But it also creates a, a, a certain type of culture individual um, in society where now there's internal things that we hold against our brothers against yep. other humans that we've never worked out and we don't say anything about it. We act like everything's fine, but internally there's envy internally. There's, there's hate internally. There's anger. And we've never taken those things to the cross because we, and so we think we're fine. And because we've never mm-hmm. actually had the trial, we haven't said no. And so you run around feeling justified. Um, and everybody does it. And there really wasn't, it's like, it's postmodern. No, there really wasn't a right decision made. Hey, brother, this was right. And you say, you know what? You were right. I was wrong. Forgive me. And then when that happens, when somebody walks up to you and says, I was wrong, will you forgive me? Everybody knows who the jerk is in the room at that moment. Because of the person who's asking for forgiveness is in humbling himself. Everybody can see it. But if the person who's like, yeah, you were wrong. Shame on you. Like, what? Everybody's like, oh, that dude's the problem. That dude's the problem. And so you fix it there too. But because we never come to that place, we leave a dirty mess for everybody to walk around in and act like everything's okay. And but what do we have in our society right now? Right. <laughs> it's the same thing, right? And so no, none of the conflicts are resolved. There's no real repentance being done. And a lot of it has happened because this is exactly how we're acting in the church. Yes, and that results in people taking the Lord's Supper hypocritically. Oh, and and if and if we don't think that there is all sorts of health curse that's falling on us for that, we are delusional, right? So, oh. so if there is unresolved conflict and you come hypocritically to the table and you're not trying to work through it, you're not trying to deal with it. There is a a promise from God that He's going to scourge our flesh, and oh. and so we we need to realize that the cost of this is all sorts of health curse. That is coming on the church. Health curse. Curse on our health, our physical bodies being harmed, some people even dying from that. That's what First Corinthians says. And you got Deuteronomy 28, and you got 27, 28. You got the curses that come. You know, it's it's um I haven't done all my harm. I know that the the left and some of the people are really reaching and lying when it comes to the green stuff. Like, there's no question about that. They're just liars. I get that. But when you look around and you're saying, why is it that, I mean, our oceans and lakes and we do have we do have some pollution that's going on that is just like horrible that the, the, we just haven't been great stewards of. And I just keep thinking, it's like, well, do you think that I mean, here, here's a good example. I did a project on um, grain and, and bread and how these colleges are um, creating and evolving and, and um what do they call it? Uh, manufacturing seeds, uh, engineering. They're engineering new types of seeds, and they have to because the 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 um, the germination. What do they call the uh, germination? Well, no, there's there's like bugs and stuff that come every season, and they diseases that come, and they destroy full crops, um, and they just can't. So they have to create the super grain. Right. And these super grains right. that they create, then it can survive, but they don't last very long. They got to create another super grain. Mm. And I just thought about it as I was thinking, I was like, oh, we think that we can get past God's 
curse. If God has cursed our land, you know, and because of the way that we've acted towards him and haven't been living honestly before him, we think that we can be like Pharaoh and we're going to clean our own water. Right. <laughs> right. Right. We, we think that we're going to be able to come and bring it before our gods with our white lab coats on and we're going to do this little thing here and that's going to mm-hmm. fix it. And and it's like at some point, y'all, you have to stop and say, why do we have to treat the ground like this? Yeah. Why do we have to? Why do we have to treat the plants and why is everything we have to do super extra? And we can't just say like Canaan, walk into and be like, look at all this fruitfulness. You got to stop for a second. Like we need to repent. Like we need. There's a lot of repentance. So even our ground and everything around us gets cursed because of the way we're acting. And so anyway, I just thought that the. The church is so important because that's the prophets that there should be telling us this. Yeah, no, that's true. And, and we, we find that in the scriptures. There's this there's this idea of the blessing on crops or stuff like that. I mean, there's curses like, you know, disease and mildew and and stuff like that. You find that all over the place. The Deuteronomical blessings and curses. There are all sorts of things that go well for you as you have the truth being proclaimed as the leaven of the gospel fills the earth. There's all this blessing that comes with the increasing application of what God commands. Not that we're going to sinlessly, perfectly do things, right. but that as we are maturing and applying more and more, being sanctified, that there is blessing that increasingly comes. And at the same time, that the failure to deal with this stuff is also a part of our law order. Um, when mm. we have the problem of the commons, right? When you have waterways being dealt with as common property or public property, you know, who are the worst stewards of property in the world? Governments. Who are the most pollute? Who are the worst polluters in the history of the world? Governments. Who are the best caretakers of property that beautify things, increase their value? Private property owners. When the government owns tons of stuff, the result is that it's a terrible steward. And so, you know, you look around at like government owned land, and what you're going to find is it's pretty worthless. You look around at privately owned land, you're going to find an impressive use of it where it's generating economic value, where it's being beautified, that's going to be the general tendency. And so the problem of the commons where waterways are owned by the government and the idea of how do we deal with the the fact that we don't have the blessing of the gospel going forth as much, that we don't have the blessing of the Christian law order. So we need need all that stuff to be fixed. That's a part of the reformation of the state. People don't even know how what you just said, how good it was. Part, remember, and I think it was Deuteronomy or the Psalm, the Song of Moses. Remember the Song of Moses as as God is coming through, say, "Hey, they're not going to listen," and so I'm going to completely cut them down. After he gets done cutting them down, he asks the priest, "Hey, he asked the people, how how did your priest do with the false god? Did did it work out so well for him? Did he protect you?" And I level them so you know that I'm the true God and I'm the one who stands alone, right? And and it's so funny because we don't get it. The, the government right now is that God. And everything mm-hmm. you just said is like, they don't do it well. They don't protect well. The, our borders are a wreck. That was sure. like part of the thing. It's like God is like, your borders will be fine when I'm the God. I'll hear what you call. How's your gods working out for you right now? They're, mm-hmm. they're, and we we this is the other thing, too, that the church seems to, I don't know if it's a Gnosticism there, but when we see things like a, a, a nation being overrun like this, this is not political problems inherently. 
these right. are theological problems inherently, right? These are these are spiritual problems. These are these are false idol problems. This is that's the real problem. It's not that we need more wood and more steel for the walls. It's, mm-hmm. it's that we need more calluses on the knees. And and so like we are we are missing. So when you're talking like these are political issues. <laughs> right. No, I mean you look about King David, and if you if you just read first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, mm. uh, you know, you read about that, you read about the political order. God spends more time talking about the way the kings worshipped than he does about like the expediency of their policies for encouraging, you know, maximal economic returns or their military strategy, right? Like the military strategy is obey God and you win wars. That's right. Like this, this is, he fights your battles for you. And so the, the idea that when Solomon, for example, stopped honoring the Lord properly, what you see is the, that the Lord sewed up enemies for him. And they hid in Egypt, or they they hid in uh, Syria, or they're you know a, a local who is starting to bring up problems inside of his own country, and then those become issues that his son has to deal with, and his son uh. is you know an embarrassment, you know, and causes the frick- fracturing of the nation and all that kind of stuff. But all this stuff, and you know, that goes back to David and his great sin, right? And so, and so we have this the the the, the honoring of the Lord lends to all of these blessings of long life of of prosperity of power right these are things you, you have particular promises associated with, with different parts of the law of god you have prosperity promises associated with tithing you have long yeah. life and enjoyment of the land associated with the honor of parents you have the promise of riding the high places of the earth and being invigorated to get work done if you keep the sabbath and call it a delight Right. We, we find these various ways in which the Lord blesses the application of his law. And, and so we want these power blessings. We want these things. And so what you hear, there's two, there's two errors that need to be dealt with. One, what I just said, some people are going to say that's like prosperity gospel. Okay. First of all, a gospel is principally about justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Uh, grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. And, and that it's it focused on the payment for our sins and for the application of his imputed righteousness to us received through faith alone, through belief alone. And so that's the principal thing. And then he sanctifies us and empowers us by the Holy Ghost to do work and to do dominion work and discipling work. And there is blessedness and fruitfulness that comes out of that. Amen. And, so, and sometimes there's persecution yeah. But also, the general tendency is going to be towards blessing. And so that idea, that's going to be called prosperity gospel. That's not the prosperity boss gospel. The prosperity gospel says it's mechanistic, and it's like a magical thing. That's right. Okay. So then you're going to have, on the other side, you're going to have people saying that this is sort of a, a works righteousness thing, or it's going to be something where the application of the law is something where uh, this is you know, as you make it, you're making it so it's too dependent upon that. And really, it's just, you know, say the proper prayers, you know, the prosperity, but gospel guys say that this is this is too much about the law or something like that. It's just like, look, we're saved by grace in order to keep the law. Right. Not that we're going to perfectly keep it, but we're saved by grace in order to apply the law in increasing detail as we are renewed after the image of Christ. And that's going to yield powerfully into discipleship where people get converted and made more holy. And it's going to yield in terms of dominion work. Um, so I know you got a list of things over there that you want to get through. You do have a list over there, I'm sure, right? 
Uh, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> All right, just real quick, tell me what's on your list, and then I want to ask you this question. I'll let you jump over there to it. We still we didn't finish out the qualifications on the elders. We talked about the, the wives properly, and I can try to do that in a faster way. No, 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 I don't want. Out. No, no, let's. I want to get through it, but there's this this question, and then we'll spend the next. Um, couple of uh, 40 minutes getting there is that fine 30 minutes and then, there? yes and we need to get into covenanted uniformity because the only way the church is going to effectively unified speaking to the culture is by having covenanted uniformity and if your pastor doesn't know what covenanted uniformity is and if you don't know what it is you need to read about it and you need to try to expose that as a part of the conversation because this is the goal of reformation is to have covenanted uniformity and the establishment of the church Okay, so we probably need to hit covenant uniformity before we start talking about the elders in their offices, or, which, or, or do we need to hit? You tell me which one you want to hit first, which one sequentially works best. Maybe covenant sure. uniformity is how you wrap it all up, since it has covenant and uniformity in it. <laughs> sure. I'll, I think we finished talking about the officers, because this is not the work of how it works. Okay. And when a church is in good order, this is how you then seek to spread it out and to work with others. That's good. And so yeah. and past, pastors who are well-ordered are meeting with each other. And it's not just them having backroom conversations with cigars and whiskey. Those are great. But it's having meetings of the courts. Mm. Okay, anyway, so. Oh, okay, we'll get to that. So um, this one you don't have to spend a lot of time on, but I think it's probably good to wrap up this section with a, a friend of mine asked me, he said, listen, I don't understand why you guys keep saying Baptists need uh, a political theology and need political theology books in some way. It doesn't make any sense to me. We're here, we're the church, we're supposed to be focused focus on building the church, God's church will prevail, you know, um, the perseverance of the church, they're all about the church, and they're in the good brother, but he's just like, it doesn't make any sense to me why you guys keep trying to have some type of political uh, theology when that seems to remove the focus of the work of the church itself. What would you say to somebody like that? I'd say they need to read Genesis 4 through 9. Because what you have right after the fall is you have the church's work gets disrupted by murder. When you have Cain killing Abel right after he rightly worships, you know what the response of the culture is going to be to right worship? When there's right doctrine, right worship, and right government in the church, the result is that the culture wants to murder us. And they will, the people with the badges and the guns will let them do it. They will let them do it. And in fact, they will even be a part of it and lead it unless there's a Christian government. Mm. And so anybody who has thought seriously at all about the totalitarian governments of the last century would not be asking this question. Anybody who has read Genesis 4 through 9 and thought about it would see what God is trying to say. What is God saying? He is saying that right worship is something that the world hates and they are jealous of the blessing of Christians and they will murder us in order to avoid their shame. And from there, the separation of the church and the world is necessary because bad company corrupts good morals, but the city of man will murder us into oblivion if we do not resist them. And so what God does is God allows that violence to fill the earth with no civil magistrate. There is no godly magistrate to restrain the wickedness. Violence fills the earth. And the way that God fixes the problem, in part, after the flood, right? He takes Noah, he takes his household, they get on the ark, 
They are saved out. The flood wipes out the rest of the earth because the earth has been filled with the city of man and the city of God has been limited down to this little group because so many people have been murdered. And the other problem is Christian men looking at unbelieving women and choosing to pursue them because of their sexual desires rather than marrying the plain-looking Christian woman, okay? If you are in a church where there are single Christian women and you're a single Christian guy and you do not want to marry any of them because you do not find them sexually attractive enough, you need to think about whether or not this is something that's an actual reasonable concern. Is the problem that your tastes have been influenced by pornography and by all sorts of other stuff to the point where you are not attracted to reasonable creation of God women? Or is the problem that there are actually just a bunch of people with significant ugliness that you just are not attracted to, right? So plain looking women or women who are mildly attractive if we say that we're not willing to marry women because they are not attractive enough and we go and marry unbelievers because of sexual appetite instead, that is that wrong marriages and not having a civil magistrate is what destroyed the church before the fall, before the flood. Sorry, not before the fall, before the flood. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in Genesis 9, after the flood, God establishes the civil magistrate. He gives the sword to Noah, and he says, if somebody murders somebody, you execute them now. And so if Christians don't have the sword, what happens is you get the Tower of Babel situation. What you have is you have Nimrod, who's a mighty hunter amongst men. You know what he was hunting? He was hunting men to enslave them and to make them a part of his empire, right? He is a mighty hunter of men. And so he built an empire by going out there and making people into his prey. And he's bringing them in and he's building an empire. And so even the sword is not sufficient because there was the danger of this grand imperializing. And so what what God did is he separated cultures by making language differentiation to reduce the consolidation of power. So God has done an enormous amount of stuff that's practical to reduce the danger of the church being killed. And if we disdain his ordinance of the civil magistrate and will not pick up the office of civil magistrate to seek to be Christians in civil office to protect the church and to see reformation, which, by the way, when you study the kings, you see the good kings tear down the idols, they stop improper worship of the true God, and they see right worship established and they help to pay to get it into place, and then they back off for it to then be maintained by the tithes. This is this initial establishing and this endowment of the church. That work is what the good kings do. And so that's the work that needs to be done. And if we don't have that, we're going to see the country be filled with wickedness. The ability to do righteousness gets taken away more and more. And you know who's principally choking out our ability to do righteousness? It's the state. There's a culture that's full of all sorts of wickedness, but the state makes it so that it's really hard to start a Christian hospital. It's really hard to have a Christian business. It's really hard to have a church speaking into the political realm. And so why do we want to avoid it? We don't want to, we don't want to lose our you know, 501c3 status or our, we don't want to lose our tax-exempt status or whatever. So the church is really concerned about not speaking into that. So our ability to do righteousness is maintained by having our liberty protected by the state. We need a Christian state. I was going to answer that so differently. I think that's way better. I thought that was way fuller. 
I because I, and I think the way I was going to answer it had some of it to do with, with how you answered I think this question indirectly last week, which is why I keep saying people need to go back and listen to last week. There is a tendency inside of evangelicalism to um, be surprised at the means that God gives them to operate, and they don't expect anything to come from it. So God gives them a seed, and they're like, ooh, thank you for the seed. And God tells them to put the seed in the ground, and they put the seed in the ground, and then they walk away, and, and they don't expect that seed to actually bring forth any life. They don't believe that faithfulness actually accomplishes something in time and space. They yeah. just they just use faithfulness as a word, and then it's like, to what end? To what mm-hmm. end? And so when they see the seed growing up, they're like, well, that's weird. Well, that's not supposed to be there. <laughs> right. It's like, no, you planted it. That's what you're supposed to do. It's like putting um, leaven in the loaf and the surprise when it raises. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. It's exactly right. The means, God gives you the gift and he gives you the means, and then that's how he expects you to get fruit. And we, we are bored with the stuff that God tells us, hey, this is the interesting stuff. This is where stuff happens. We all go, ah, that's cool and everything, but I'd like to go do my thing. Yeah. And that's, that's the idea of the regulative principle of life. The law of God tells you the stuff that matters. Mm. He points you at the stuff that matters. If you're paying attention to a bunch of stuff and your goal is to say, well, it's not sin to do this thing. Okay, but does God positively tell you to do it? Is it one of the things he wants you to focus on? And if not, you're probably wasting your life. Mm. All right. So let's get to your list. So where do we leave off the last time? I'm sure you had a point because you had like 17 points. All right. Where do you want to pick back up at? All right. So we looked at the text. You know, we talked about the blamelessness of the teacher. We talked about the office being for good work. We talked about how being a one-woman man, being serious, Nephalion, being focused on the goal, getting stuff done. Uh, we talked about being Sophronin, which was being prudent or wise, knowing how to pick good means. We also talked about being cosmion, which was being competent. Ah, I love that one. Love and that, that one, one relates to the, uh, the Hebrew word for kail, which is a you know, man of valor, this kind of competent man. And that's, by the way, one of the qualifications of Exodus 18.21, the civil magistrate. He has to be a kail, an ish kail, a man of competence, an able man, a man of valor. So that idea, competence. So back about hospitality, hospitality is the place where the work gets done in terms of where private ministry really happens. It's a place where your wife can shine. It's a place where people can see in and they can see your home and if it's in good order. And so we talked about the idea of being able to teach. And able to teach is made up of four components. If you look at, this is the part I think we left off on. I want to emphasize this. Competency to teach is competency to teach out of the word of God. Mm. Now, this takes on the form of when you see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it talks about the word of God being profitable for doctrine, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So the word of God is for that. So a good teacher is able to teach the doctrine, to positively lay things out. So the ability to lay out things and, for example, say, what are the three uses of the law? You know, and the ability to explain that, right? You explain that clearly, you can show it from the scriptures. Then to rebuke is to be able to say, hey, this is sin, and you need to stop and put it off. Mm. Correction is the ability to say, this is what righteousness is. This is what you need to put on in its place. So the last one, the training in righteousness, the discipline in righteousness, that is this idea of not only giving an example, but then also the -the on-the-spot rebuking and correcting and the ability to apply the rod in your own home, but also to apply the keys in the church. Mm. And so the public use of rebuke and admonition, the public use of 
of suspending people from the table, the public use of excommunication, casting people out of the church, that their, their flesh might be scourged by Satan, that their soul might be saved, right? That, that idea of the, the ability to use the word for all of those things. And furthermore, you're using the word to equip the saints. That's what Ephesians 4 talks about, is the officers are given the word to equip the saints so that the saints can do the work of ministry. And so if they're not teaching in a way that's making the people better, mm. that guy needs to be removed from the pulpit. It, it's not just character disqualification. It's, is the guy useful? Like when he gets up and, and preaches, are you like, yeah, this was a good use of everybody's time. Mm. Right. And, and if it wasn't a good use of everybody's time, and that's the consistent thing, that guy needs to be removed from office, not because he's, you know, the worst guy ever, but just you go, maybe he should be a deacon. Maybe he's not fit for the office of elder. Maybe he's not able to teach yet. And maybe he will be. Let's consider that later. But maybe right now he's not. And so this idea that you can teach competently and well so that people are able to learn and become better at the Christian life and to be able to grow in sanctification. So that ability to teach is to make it so that the man of God is complete, right? Not, not, not incomplete, complete. Can you teach the word of God in such a way that you're able to then help to fill people up to completeness, to maturity, that they're thoroughly equipped for every good work, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so if a pastor is not competent to teach the word of God, he's not going to teach it well in a useful way. And if he's afraid of the word and is a people pleaser, he's going to avoid a lot of the law. Yeah. And so the why, pastor, why is the law yeah. a breaking point? I've noticed that too. And you said this twice now, but it seems like, and you said this, pastors won't preach between Deuteronomy and Leviticus number. They won't preach that. But why is that a breaking point? Because you lose a lot of people that pay tithes or pay free will offerings when you start to tell them God tells you to do this thing and you need to do it or you'll get disciplined. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, and also, you know who doesn't like you? Other pastors. Mm. Because you make them look bad. Because there's, there's decisiveness to what you're saying, right? It's mm -hmm. very clear. It's not, you can't be ambiguous about this. Also, people will tolerate heresy way more than they will tolerate being told to do stuff they don't want to do. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I've seen that. But is, is is there a side to it as well that a lot of them, I've I've because I've started at least in the charismatic world, the Old Testament was very comfortable to us. By the time I became a theonomist, I became I, I understood finally the things that I've been reading for a long time. So I but it was already ingrained into me through the charismatic environment. Theonomist, theonomy kind of like organized it for me because I could understand the purpose and intent of God law, knew the purpose of case laws. And so a lot of it, I, I was wondering if it's just like ignorance and becomes very obvious that he doesn't have the wisdom to weed through these type of doctrines very well and apply them. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, and I think that, you know, as a preacher, when you teach people about the law of God, who's going to be looked at the most? Yeah. The preacher. True. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So. You teach your kids, hey, we don't want to watch stuff that has uh, immodesty in it. We don't want to watch stuff that has that kind of language. And then your kids walk by and you're watching a thing. They hear the language you told them not to listen to. And you're like, they're like, hey, yeah. you said we don't do this. Yeah. And so the external conscience, right? As, as a preacher, it's not a comfortable thing to point out stuff, right? And, and, and to tell people, here's a bunch of stuff you need to hold me accountable for. Because 
unless you're held accountable for it, nobody's going to be held accountable for it. That's right. All right. I interrupted you. Go ahead. So I think what you just said about the not being able to interpret the law is a really great point. And there's a lot to say there, and I'm not going to go into that. <laughs> I didn't right mean to give it, that's why I don't double click on some of the stuff, because I know I'll take you down a rabbit trail. We'll never get through what you got there. Go ahead. Okay. So, so we talked about the idea of didacticon or being able to teach. Um, and so you're able to use the word to give doctrine, rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness. And there's a ton to say there, and we don't have time for it. So, mm-hmm. so then he's got to rule his own house well. Ruling in his own house well, um, oh, sorry, I skipped over something. Forgive me, we'll get there. Sorry, 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 sorry. Okay, verse three, verse three. Verse three has this interesting list of six things, okay? So here's how it reads in the New King James. Not addicted or given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. In other words, not a lover of money is the other way it could be translated. Okay, so there are three main warnings that you see over and over again for kings and this is also applied for elders. And you find this in general, here's a war, here's here's the danger. And you see this in Proverbs as well. The danger is being a lover of pleasure. You see this in Ecclesiastes also. A lover of pleasure, a lover of power, a lover of money. Okay, with the kings, here's the way that warning comes out. Kings, do not multiply wives. Why do you multiply lives, wives? Well, it could be for political political purposes, but a lot of the times they're multiplying concubines too. And I'll tell you what, concubinage does not typically result in an alliance with a foreign state, right? That's about pleasure seeking. And so this idea of not being enslaved to pleasure, um, then the next one that the warning is don't multiply horses and chariots. Mm. That's about having an imperial standing army. It's about the multiplication of power. And then there is the don't multiply gold. Why? How do kings get their gold? Taxation or forced labor. And so multiplying gold by keeping taxes high and then increasing your salary as king so that you are given more stuff that you're able to spend in your own household, that's a danger. David, I'm just going to completely change the way that I've been having the conversation about government. This is a, I'm going to start saying now, this is a multiplication of pleasure. This is a multiplication of power. This is a multiplication of money. I'm going to start making those categories and start moving everything into those categories. I need to kind of just change that for me. Okay, keep going. I'm sorry. That, that's very helpful. Sure. And so, and, and you think about this, people who have different gifting sets, right? We talked back, back in the very early part of our conversation chain, I think conversation two, we, I talked about the prophet priest king and how we are in the image of God in knowledge, holiness, and righteousness. And that relates to the work of prophet, priest, and king, right? There's a draw in different places here. Uh, people who are very kingly are drawn to power because you're like, the power is how you get stuff done. The way I get money is by maintaining my power. The way I maintain my pleasure is by maintaining my power. The way I get stuff done is by just domineering and making it happen, right? There's the the, the, the prophetic guy likes money because you're like, I can convince people to do whatever I want with money, right? I can avoid warfare. I can do whatever. It's the manipulator thing, right? So the, the guy who's prophetic is tempted more towards this money thing because he can manipulate people with money. And the guy who's priestly and relational and, and likes beauty and, and glory, right? That guy, the priestly guy, is going to be tempted towards the pleasure-seeking. Okay, mm-hmm. so so those things, if you're a person— What if you, you got to, all three? Yeah, then, then you're just, you're just <laughs> us, horrible, right? You know, okay. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Everybody has all of those, right? We're all yeah, prophetic, priestly, yeah, and kingly. Yeah, yeah. But you have different vents, right? And, yeah. and a well-rounded person is just going to be the worst. Right? <laughs> you can have all the problems. So I was <laughs> So, 
So in the, and when we think about this, you find this in the book of Proverbs, read the book of Proverbs, look for those categories, pleasure, mm. power, money, all over the place. The same with Ecclesiastes for the different goods that he's chasing down. By the way, the book of Ecclesiastes is an apologetic manual for how to deconstruct false views of the good. Mm. And it is an assertion of why God as the good, as the highest good is defensible intellectually in comparison to the rest. Don't have time to talk about that, but that's a nugget for everybody. Go read the book of Ecclesiastes, look for the false goods that are being asserted. Okay, so when we talk about elders now, look at this verse, verse three. What we have is wine, which by the way, look at Proverbs 31. At the beginning of it, it warns about, hey, don't, don't chase after wine. It's not fitting for kings. Okay, wine is associated with pleasure seeking. You're trying to escape the difficulties. You're trying to have a merry heart. You're trying to have a party, right? So, um, so not being enslaved to wine is not being enslaved to pleasure seeking. It's also about not being a drunk and how that messes up your ability to judge things. But pleasure seeking in general is going to make it so that you're a terrible judge. Mm. You're a terrible leader. So you're going to be easily manipulable because you seek that? pleasure above all, right? That like you're seeking. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I got it. Got it. Right. That's your God. That's the good. The good for you is, is hedonism. It's the good life is, is the life of pleasure and ease. Okay. So, so that pleasure seeking, so wine is there and then there's violence and that, that obviously relates to power, right? Similar to if you're a violent and domineering guy, if you're a bullying guy, then you are going to be a power guy. And as opposed to resolving disputes by trying to, you know, argue through the things you're going to instead use the manipulation tactics by the way so many pastors are just bullying domineering manipulators against guys they don't like mm. that's how they, that's how they push out the young bucks right they use the bullying domineering thing and they use private meetings as opposed to having public meetings for dispute they use private meetings and they keep disputes private so they can bully these guys out and most of the time you can manipulate their conscience and bully them out or get them to just be quiet. So you try to cow them and keep them in, or you try to bully them and push them out Dave, and not you, give them public process. You know, you you're, as you're talking about this, there are so many things that are popping into my head. Part of what a lot of people have tried to do on the conversation around Christian nationalism is like, well, let's just let's talk about it in the, this private conversation. Let's just yep. let's keep it private. Like, yeah, let's just let's say hey in the back room, we'll, we'll we'll meet privately and talk about it. And then when you say, hey, why don't you come to the table and let's have it publicly? They're saying, oh, we don't operate like that. Oh, how could you? These are private conversations we're willing to have. They, they like, don't operate like men? They want to effeminately use relationships to manipulate people in back rooms? Is that what they want to do? Wow. Right, wow. so that's the, ple the pleasure-seeking man is going to also have a really hard time making people unhappy. The pleasure-seeker is also going to be a people-pleaser. Mm. The pleasure-seeker is going to tend to be a people-pleaser, and he's going to have a really hard time making his woman mad. He's going to have a really hard time making his pastor friends mad. He's going to really have a hard time making the 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 women and effeminate men that are the power brokers of the church mad. You know, you know, David, I don't like the way you're looking at me right now. I I, I, don't, I don't like the way I, I look at personally, your screen. Personally, I don't like the way I'm being looked at right now. <laughs> Go ahead. This is all an accusation. This is all a passive aggressive I, accusation I, I, I against think, I think I think yeah, I think you've been talking to people. Go ahead. I, I, I have literally no idea how this applies to you. All <laughs> this conviction you. going on. No, oh, I'm man. Kidding. No, I'm kidding. No, no, no. Oh, okay. So you're saying too many hard things in public. I don't think that's true. So, okay. So, so then you've got the idea of greed, right? So 
see wine, pleasure, violence with the bullying, the power, love, and, and then the greed, right? So it's mm. obvious that's related to that. And so then you've got a list of three things that are that are basically saying the same thing from a different perspective. Okay, so verse three continues, and verse three says, so this not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. Then it says, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. The the gentle part um, is actually epiakeia or epiakeia, which is which is moderation. It has to do with the idea of self government, self control. Um, so so it's the, as opposed to being enslaved to pleasure, be a man who shows moderation. Mm. Okay, so gentle kind of messes it up. You don't get the relationship of the two. Uh, but at the same time, remember gentleness is about self control. It's about being able to control your power, and so. So you can see that, but moderation helps it to be way more obvious. And, and then when you talk about this idea of not quarrelsome, right? So not violent, not quarrelsome. Um, the not quarrelsome is also translatable as peaceable. So sort of the, the positive side of it. Um, and so you then also, lastly, in that, you know, there's, there's three sets of two. Uh, the last part that you get to there is this not a money lover. And so a lover of money is somebody who thinks that money's the good. If you're a mm -hmm. pleasure lover, you think pleasure is the good. You think money's the good. You're a money lover. And if you think power is the good, you're you know a power lover, right? So those are the things. So this is a a dual list. It's two lists of the trio of pleasure, power, money. And so that's what's there. It's emphasized and it's stated twice. So that's important for kings, and it's let's list it twice important for elders. Go ahead. I'm not interrupt you because I got questions. Go ahead. I'll let you keep going. I'll let you keep going. Well, I, the, the next part goes into verse four. So it's the ruling the house well. So if you want to talk about those things, let's deal with that before we go into ruling the house well. No, because we're never going to get there. Okay. Ruling the house go, well. Go, go there because because the question I want to ask you is how do you be that man? Because we're mm -hmm. talking about what he's supposed to look like. Yeah. But when I look around, Either it's taken, you know, I think, I don't think our elders have intentionally hid how they become the godly man that they are, but the next generation coming after them ha is not capable of seeing the breadcrumb, the breadcrumbs that they've left for us to follow. In, yeah, uh, so. Absolutely. And I think that's why catechesis, where you're teaching the fundamentals and a process to develop men, right? Right now in my church, we're working on a curriculum to take men and we're calling it the, the you know first john has this idea of the the child the young man and the father in the faith and so we're making a curriculum for the child in the faith what do they need to know to be established mm. and then a young man who is a fighter what does he get trained up to do and then the fathers who are the trainers what do they need to know and that relates to covenanted uniformity and so this idea of what's the doctrine the church is covenanted to uphold how do we make sure people get taught that? And if you don't have clear convictions, you can't mature people up into a firmness. And so the way that this gets overcome is wisdom, right? The good is God. And the way you get more God is by getting more wisdom. You get more knowledge from the word of God. And so the word of God is wisdom. You study his gospel and you study his law and you have the law and the gospel, and you are filled with all the promises and news, and you're filled with all the commandments, and you meditate on these things, that wisdom permeates, and it helps to destroy the idols. 
And so it's about attacking the unbelief, the false things. Why do you think pleasure is so good? Why is that video game so good? Mm. Why is that bottle of wine so good? Why is chasing these women so good? What about the pornography makes you feel like, yeah, that's the good. That's worth spending my time and energy on. Right. And the reason is because we lie to ourselves that it will make us happy. Happiness is the effect of getting what you think is good. Mm. And if you instead realize why these things are wrong, and not just wrong, but why they are misery creating, then you begin to despise them. It's a process of reordering your affections and valuation by growing in how much you see the value of God. The more you know about God, the more you are going to see him as glorious and better than pornography. The more you're going to see him as better than wasting your time on some video game as opposed to doing real-world dominion work, even though you get thorns and thistles, right? So the willingness to forego the short-term pleasures of sin because you realize that the pleasures of God are greater and that these pleasures are mixed with misery, whereas the pleasures of God are mixed only with a promise of increase. And so believing that more fully, arguing with yourself. And so it's about doctrine, and then it's also about having people that are willing to be disciplinarians with you because mm. they, they need to increase your awareness. So this idea of you have to be willing to be around people who are not only going to teach you, Hey, do it like, you know, here's the thing, here's the truth. But then they're willing to say, Hey, you're doing it wrong. Stop it. You're hurting yourself. Stop it. And people are willing to say, no, do it like this. This is the way God commands. And then they're willing to be there to be an example. And then when you still don't, they're willing to say, Hey, it's time for public discipline, man. You've, you keep falling into this thing. Hmm. and and the willingness to suspend somebody from the table, that kind of stuff, like the willingness to deal with discipline. So we need it. We need to get spanked, right? That's, that's, that's the thing. A lot of us didn't have parents that spanked us, and we have this built-up love of, of pleasure or money or power, and that needs, to be, that needs to be pushed out with the use of the word and with the keys. And if we have our leaders in our churches like that and who are manipulating, who are loving pleasure, who is loving power and loving money, there's no question of why our civil environment is run rampant with that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so and I, I honestly I talk to Christians and Christians are like, well, those are qualifications for civil magistrates, but maybe they're guidelines and we don't need to actually it's like it's like. Why? Because you don't have any candidates at all that you can vote for? Yeah. It's like, okay, think about that for a second. If you apply the standards, you don't have any candidates you can vote for at all. <laughs> and that was your argument. <laughs> right. And so it's just like, look, guys, like, like, think about, first of all, your vote doesn't matter. Like, you are, your vote is so insignificant as a single vote. But what does matter is obedience to God. Like, mm. pragmatically speaking, if you literally can't vote for anybody in a particular election and you have to put leave it blank or write in a name or whatever, you're like, I'm throwing away my vote. It's like, your vote's not going to make the difference. The reason you should vote is out of obedience to God, not because of pragmatically the fact that you think that you are going to tip it over the edge. And your goal is to advance righteousness in the land, right? You, you, you vote because you're trying to obey God, and your goal is to see righteousness done. So you expect obedience to God to result in fruit. Mm. You don't expect pragmatic power politics, the love of power, to bear fruit. Not mm. good fruit. Mm. All right. So you got covenant uniformity in, and you answered my question of how we do it. 
what is the next area you wanted to hit? So the rest of the qualifications, it says that you got to have your house ruled well. Ruling your house well, there are, remember we talked about heads of house. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah. They've got three offices, right? You're a right. master of your home. You're yep. head of the estate. You are a husband. You got to lead your wife. And you're a father. You got to lead the children. You have to be somebody who's running your house well. Running your house well looks like an effective economic engine that is profitable. Mm. And it also looks like your wife is growing in godliness because you're washing her in the word and your children are. Mm. And so your children are going to be in submission. And one of the main ways you're going to see that your children are in submission is they honor you in public. They honor you when there's hospitality. They obey you when you tell them to do stuff. They are doing their schoolwork. They're doing their economic work. And if you haven't given any chores to your kids, they're not being productive. They're not being useful. They're not removing stuff off the uh, off of the parents. So one of the things that gets shown, if, if people come over to your house and you've got a bunch of kids and none of them are doing anything to help your wife with the hospitality and your wife is doing all the work for hospitality, that suggests that you're a bad manager and you do not know how to make it so that the people in your house work well together to accomplish things. And you want to free up the wife to be a part of being the queen, to be able to be hospitable and to engage with people. And the children should be the ones who are more willing to be silent and to do the service work so that their mother can be a part of the talking. And so that idea of how do you do that? Now, the younger the children are, the less they can do. The older they are, the more they can do, right? And so this idea of running the household well, that gets displayed in hospitality. And the children being in submission, they're obeying, and they show positive respect. It says, in submission with reverence. Mm. They obey, and they show positive signs of respect. And I think we don't even know what that is anymore. Like, I think we don't, we don't know what positive signs, like if I just like sort of grabbing people out of your audience and was like, Hey, so what positive signs of respect should you be teaching your children to pay to people that are older than them or higher rank than them or whatever? They'd be like, uh, show them how to shake people's hand. Well, while looking them in the eye, like, like what else, you know, how about standing when the gray haired injured? Right. How about saying, sir and ma'am? Um, right. If, if Sarah was commended for calling her husband Lord, certainly the children should. Right. So the sir and ma'am is the closest thing we've got. And so that kind of stuff, how do you, how do you, and you can call dad or mom, right? Those are positive titles of honor. But the point is just like calling things out that are positive duties of honor. So what am I saying? If a man doesn't have his children saying, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, perfectly all the time. And they're not, you know, jumping into the kitchen to knock the mom out of the way to let her, you know, go talk or whatever. The guy's not qualified. No, but these are positive signs to look for. If you see this stuff, this is positive. If you don't see it, it's a red flag. And you go, what are you doing to train your kids? Are they submissive quickly? What positive things are you telling them to do so that they are a part of the family order, the family economy? They are learning to become useful. And remember the old Jewish saying, if you don't treat your, teach your son a trade, you're teaching him to become a thief. Hmm. So is there positive work you're training them to do? That's how they're a part of the productive and useful part of the household. I want you, you ran over this really quick, but what was it? Father, master, what was that third one? Husband. Husband. So, Thank you. so you're a master of the home, which means you're obligated to manage the estate and the servants. And you think you don't, if you don't think you have any servants, you know, that's silly. Right? You don't Everybody have a cell here. phone? Everybody's got a cell phone. <laughs> right. You've got dishwashers. You've got all that. Like, there's all sorts of stuff that people have here. And in addition to that, we pay for lots of services. That's right. So 
but if you have employees, you know, you're in a, a different place there. And so there's also that. And then the children are supposed to be doing work and they're a part of that. The children, as a master of the estate, you're supposed to give your children productive work to do. So then that idea of the husband, the husband leads his wife. He does not have the power of the rod over the wife. He has the power of the rod over the children. And he is supposed to lead her, wash her with the word. And so that's how that government works. And the government of the children and the children are supposed to be taught. They're supposed to be raised up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. They need to be made productive. So master, husband, father. Mm. David, so, I know you got more. I just... It's hard. There's a ton. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. There's, there's a ton, but I don't have time to go into it. So if then we're told that if he can't take care of his house, he can't manage the church well. Right, right? So, right. So... So here's one of the reasons men hate church, because the officers are typically incompetent at administering projects, <laughs> and they are really bad at deploying capital, and the idea of having to follow effeminate men doing stuff in the public sphere here with volunteer work that they're not getting paid for to a system. So like... What we need to realize is we need to be competent and effective and we need to govern well and not waste people's time. Mm. And what we need to do is to find things to lead them in, in terms of ministry. And there needs to be public governance where people can deal with problems, where men can raise complaints to represent their homes. And we have to have men that are officers that are strong enough to be able to publicly argue with people. Mm. And, and public argumentation is, is a healthy part of resolving conflict on public matters. If a church court makes a decision yeah. or if public teaching happens, private dispute is not the appropriate place. It's public teaching and public decisions. Objections should be raised publicly. And there needs to be an avenue for that. And men that govern their houses well are people that are making people do stuff they don't necessarily want to do all the time, but that is necessary. And they learn how to do that and how to communicate and to argue why. And if you're able to argue why and to lead your wife, then you might be able to lead other men and convince them to devote their time's energy and effort and to submit and to come and work alongside. And public ability to raise concerns and to deal with stuff is how you make men loyal. And you make it so they go, this is good. This is what I want to put my back into. This is the plow I want to pull. These are the men I want to follow. And so it also makes you stronger. When, and, and it makes you say less stupid stuff. As a pastor, I don't say as many stupid things as I would say because I know I have men who will object and who have opportunity to object. Mm. And so running your house well shows itself when you are able to do it in running the church well, and that involves interacting with men who have to be persuaded and dealt with and who have opportunity to argue back. So running, the, running well involves a competency in management and a competency in dealing with keeping loyalties and dealing with disputes, solving conflict. And that's why this guy can't be a novice. It goes to that. And it talks about not being a novice. Not being a novice is basically at least a year, right? Again, going back to that covenant principle, we talked last time about Deuteronomy 24, 5, when a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any public business. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. So we talked about that. That would apply here for the novice. And a guy needs to show the positive qualifications for a year before he can go into this public office. And the danger is also that there's pride, right? If he 
if he is a novice and he enters office, he's likely to think, you know, look, I'm awesome. I just got here and I'm doing this. And you guys have been doing this all this time. And you think I'm better and good to rule. And so the, the pride there and the condemnation of the devil is that the pride would allow the church to be attacked. Um, so anything before I move on to the last? Uh, no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm going to let you hit that one. So the last one is good testimony by those that are outside. And people want to say this is outside of the church. And like, think about that for a second. Like, wh- who in our culture is going to speak well of godly Christian men? Are they going to be like, this guy is a racist, homophobe, who is a misogynist, and whatever? It's like, it's like, well, okay. I mean, so, so no, in that guy, like, like he's not that well of those outside of the church. I guess so they the only to, they got to judge for us who we get to have and who we can't. Right. So it's not talking about that. And then a lot of people will say, well, outside of the local church, but. That's not the context. The idea is those outside of the home. Mm. He, he does well in his home. His wife is fit. His children are in submission and they are reverent and th- they think well of him, therefore. And also those outside of the home. And so in other words, he's well thought of. His home is well run and he's well thought of. He's respected in that local church. Um, and the danger of the snare of the devil of people who are disrespected being in office where people grumble against the officer if you're not well-respected. So this is why, for example, the men of the local church have to elect officers. So other officers may not simply impose an officer. You have to have an election of the officers, as we see in Acts 6, for example. So both the men have to vote for this guy and the existing officers have to. And so you've got two separate keys that have to be turned. And so these are the qualifications, and men like this will produce men that are disciples that are fit to go into the civil magistracy. They will lead well, and they will have the guts to fight for good church order and to seek to go out and to work with other churches and take the lumps of dealing with that. So uh, I'm not sure where we are in time. We'll probably use like an hour extra of where we are. No, man, I wanted you to get through that. And, you know, I wish I wish we were having more conversations about this. I don't think— you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about a young man who is raised up in his father's home with a father like this, who lives this way, is going to be, a, by the time he reaches his father's age, I was just reading about Caleb. Oh, it was so crazy. I'm going to get to a point, I promise. I just got to say, it's when you go back and you're reading Joshua, and Caleb is like 85, mm-hmm. 86, something like that, and he's asking Joshua, like, Joshua, yo. There's this mountain over here, fam. I want it. Like, I, I want that one. Like, for real, Joshua, like, I can still go in like I was 40. I can I can still fight inside here like I'm 40. And I can go out and fight too, fam. Like, let me take it and put my name on it for the, for the kingdom, yo. <laughs> like, and he's just mm-hmm. like, he is so gangster. I just yeah. love it. Caleb is like, if I have a... He's great. Right? And I'm just thinking, like, yo, like, how do you come up underneath Caleb and be like, you can't come up and be like, my granddaddy was a punk. Like, my granddaddy was Caleb. It's like, I got to live up to that, right? It's a whole different mm-hmm. status of, of lineage when you come underneath a man like that. Yes. And so th- there is a, a young man who is coming up underneath that type of training and education. When we start talking about civil things, the, the, the government and politics— if we have men like that, 90% of the conversations we're having around Christian nationalism wouldn't even be a conversation. 
it wouldn't even be a conversation. And the, the root of all of the problems that we're having around how we do civic policy and all this stuff like that and politicking is, is the root is that we just have no masters, no husbands, and no fathers. And, and so then what we have is a, a culture rampant of fatherlessness, husbandry, and, and good masters. And so we are left with what we have here. And the question I guess I wanted to ask as we're wrapping, and I, I kind of asked it before, but, you know, when you talk, I, my heart in so many ways, I'm like, Lord, make me this kind of man. I want to be like had whatever was in my family before the mess that it was no generations of marriage before that like it stops here so god whatever make me like caleb you know that's what i want and and so we're in this middle where there's like i think a lot of men are waking up to this say i gotta be that guy i gotta be that guy the one that honors god and so part of it is like you know i think it starts with repentance but man we and I asked you this last time, so I'm just asking the same question again. How do we do all this at the same time? Yeah, right? we, so we can't. We can't just like stop for one second and start trying to be a good husband, and as we're trying to be a, a good father, as we're trying to be a good man. These mm -hmm. things are mo moving in motion, man. And yes, and it's not trying to, and it's it's complicated. And then, so I guess part of it too is nobody ever tells you how to do. It. You just kind of jump in and get your foot wet. But then you're never going to be qualified, <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah. So first of all, I would say this: what we should do is pray. So let's pray right now, and <laughs> yes. everyone else pray. Pray with us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Father, we ask that you would help and make us men like this, and mm. you cause the men that are listening to be men like this. We ask that you would do this powerfully through your word. We ask for your strength to do it. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now, the other thing is, the Lord says, if you keep the Sabbath, He will make it so that you have strength and that you can ride oh, the high places on. of the earth. The Sabbath is key to this. Okay, the idea that we have a day that is devoted to church, you know how you do it is the proper apportionment of time. Like if I weren't a Sabbatarian, I have no idea how I would ever manage to deal with my own estate, my own family, my own wife, try to deal with you know pastoral concerns of individuals and to make it so there's a focus on the church. So the Sabbath, the Sabbath is so important. And again, Morning and evening worship, the idea that you do private worship and that you do household worship. Like the way you raise your children and you wash your wife and you give your children a culture is that. So, I mean, and then you got to share in the blessings. So you, you, you play together, you enjoy blessings together, you work together, you get stuff done. It's not a one-income household, right? We, it's, all the, it's all the kids and the wife working with you to build. And then uh, I'm not saying everybody goes get a job. I'm saying you're working together and you're trying to manage things. And then furthermore, you worship together. So play together, work together, worship together. And the enjoyment of things together in building and in sharing the fruit of that and worshiping together and giving thanks to God powerfully advances that. So Sabbath and working together, playing together and worshiping together. That is the powerful thing that makes so the family can do that. And your children will be your strength. The children are able to advance your cause. The mm. children are able to bear wait and your wife works with you she's your helper to do these things and and that's why in the new covenant we have an increased power that the hearts of the children will be turned to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children we are so disordered we want to go and chase down the state 
You're not going to take over the state with godly rule until your hearts return to your children and your children's hearts return to you so you can rule together. You could be like Cromwell and have his son who was effeminate and unwilling to keep the Christian order there. And as a result, they call him Queen Dick because he was unable to keep the throne. And after that, the result was that all the Puritans got persecuted and you had the killing times of the Covenanters and you had the the ejection of 2,000 British ministers who were Puritans that were unwilling to adopt the Book of Common Prayer, a thousand in Scotland. And so you have these guys that all get thrown out because you don't have the son of the Lord Protector who's willing to avoid bringing back in a wicked king, Charles II coming in, and causing this horrific, wicked rule, right? So if we don't care about our children, we can build and build and build. And you know what? The wicked will get it. And so we have to build and we have to fight to keep it. And so the order of operation is be a godly man, seek wisdom, seek first wisdom, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ. The wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. Mm. And the wisdom gives power. The truth sets you free. It sets you free of guilt. It's the instrument of justification. And truth also truth also sets you free from bondage to sin. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so the word of God is powerful to make us so we can govern ourselves, so we can govern our families, as we put the word into our children and our wives and to our employees. What we find is that they are governed more and more by the word of God. They carry weight with us. We keep the Sabbath. We work for six days hard to make stuff happen, and we keep the Sabbath, and the Lord gives us strength, and then we are fit for public office because people see that we're governing things well, and more power and resources are given to us, and others rally around us to do the work. And in the church, people will find each other to work and give resources to build businesses faster and bigger, and they will work together to see good, godly magistrates elected. That is how God has designed it. The law of God is our instruction manual for dominion. It is effective. It is powerful. The world will be taken over with the preaching of the word and the application of the law. Mm. They don't call him Strawberry because his preaching is sweet, although that is true. As you can see, they call him Strawberry because he's covered in the blood of his enemies. That was good. Website, sir. First, uh, follow me uh, at Real David Reese on X. Yes. At Real David Reese. That's Reese with a C. And then I'm uh, uh, armoredrepublic.com, uh, where you can buy body armor, and you too can be covered in the blood of your enemies, uh, <laughs> or, and, uh, and still live. Uh, and, then, <laughs> and, then, right. and then, and then, thirdly, uh, Puritan Reformed uh, Church is uh, puritanphx.com. Puritanphx.com. David, I'll see you next week. I'm going to be out for two weeks, you guys. I'll be out for two weeks. I'll, I'm going to try and pop in and do a show, but I'll be in Phoenix, Arizona, be playing, praying for my son. He's got some treatment out there for his concussions, so we're praying that God heals him through these treatments. Um, and so I'll be out, but Cross Politics shows will still be running, so you can catch some Cross Politics, and maybe we'll do a pop-up show while I'm out there in Arizona. That'd All right, fun. you guys. Let's pray for DJ before we end this. Yes. Come on. Yeah, yeah. All right. Father, we pray that you would cause these treatments to be effective and that you would bless him. And we ask that you would uh, care for him and that you would glorify your name by that. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. David, until next time, thank you, sir. Appreciate you. Thank you. Y'all know what to do. Go to flfpub.com. Become a Fight Life Feast Club member so we continue to do these shows. 
I love this. May the Lord God bless you real good. <laughs>